0: Father, we bow here in your presence once again, thanking you for your blessings on us and the privilege you give us to come together, to pray, to study, and to worship. Father, I pray for each person that's here that their hearts will be lifted up, softened, and drawn closer to you for having been here today. Now go with us, Father, and direct this study, guide our thoughts, and Father, may you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why don't you all be seated? You know, I bet that somebody, probably every one of us at some point, has, has known somebody in their life that seemed to be so far away from God that you just thought to yourself, well, this person is unreachable. They are cold spiritually. They're sinful in the way they're living, and they're not very kind or loving. And you've looked at them, and it may be a loved one. And in a lot of cases, that's true. And you just think to yourself, well, who in the world is ever going to be able to reach this person? Who's going to be able to minister to this person? Because they seem so far away from God. I don't know what you know, what else could happen. And then all of a sudden things get worse. They hit rock bottom. Everything in their life falls apart. They choose to become even more estranged from God and the church and things like that. And this further away from God. And it's almost as if they've been brought to their knees and That God has just taken away everything. And then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, they seem to soften. And they begin to reach out to God. They begin to search. They begin to want to know him. They begin to want to change. And you can't think of a reason why other than the fact that they've hit rock bottom and now they've decided to bring about some changes in their lives. That's happened to so many people. Um, As I look back over the years of ministry that I've been involved in uh, there are a number of people that that has happened to some of them are loved ones or relatives of mine that we've lifted up in prayer for years and it seems like the more we prayed the worse things god until finally at one point for one some reason they tend they seem to respond and all of a sudden things begin to change now i wonder here's the question how many of you have ever prayed for that to happen How many of you have ever prayed that a loved one that seems to be so far away from God, that their lives would actually hit rock bottom? How many of you have ever prayed that God would bring them to their knees, take away everything they've got, bring them to the point where they have nowhere to look up, but nowhere to look but up? How many of you have ever prayed that way? Because, see, here's my experience, at least, as I've tried to help people. They'll come into my office and say, Pastor, please pray for my spouse or my children or some loved one, and then. They begin to, you know, enumerate all the things that's going on in their lives and how far away from God they are. And then I'll say, well, then let's just pray that God would just beat them down. Let's pray that God would break them. Let's pray that God would bring them down to their knees and God would bring them to the point where they don't have any other option. And then inevitably they'll say, well, no, 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 no. Let's let's don't pray that. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want things to get worse. I'm trying to help them. And I say I understand that. I said, but there comes a point in time where all we can do is pray that God would just bring them down. And get them to the point where they're, they're not relying on themselves anymore. And it t- sometimes it means that things have to get worse before they get better. But are you willing to do that? And it's rare that you find somebody. Now, I've prayed that way. I've prayed that way for a number of people over the years. I've learned that there are some people you can't help. You just can't help them. Uh, They don't want it. They aren't seeking it. And as hard as you try and as hard as you pray, it seems like they just keep making foolish, ungodly decisions. And there's not really anything that you can do. So, yeah, I've prayed that. I've prayed that, God, you take them to the end of themselves. You knock them down. You take away everything they've got. You destroy their lives. If that's what it takes to bring them to the point of change and to bring them to the point, if they are an unbeliever, to bring them to the point of faith. But do whatever you have to do. It takes a lot of faith to believe and to trust that God will do that. And I have prayed that on a number of occasions. Now today, here's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the topic of when God hardens the heart. When God hardens the heart of a person. Now we're talking about a person that has become rebellious. They're so far away from God that it seems like they can't go any further. And then all of a sudden things get worse. Then all of a sudden, it seems like God just did something, that they, they're they hardened, they become worse than they were before. And it's gotten to the point where here's the choices. They either turn to God or they're going to die if this continues because things are that bad. So what's going on in a situation like that? Is God doing something? Is it possible? Because in scriptures, you're going to see today, we're going to see that God is, When it comes to a person like that, when they're so hard that nobody can reach them and so hard that that they're not listening, that the only thing left to do is for God to intervene. When God intervenes, the first thing that he does is hardens their heart. It's almost as if God is saying, I don't want you to change your mind because I'm committed to taking you through this course now. We're going to finish the course. You've chosen this, this is what you want, then you're going to feel the full brunt of it. You've been given too many opportunities, and things have gone so well for you for so long, and people have been praying for you, people have been reaching out to you, and you keep putting it off, you keep shunning them. So I have decided that you're not going to change until you have been completely devastated. Whoa. Some of you are sitting there thinking, man, I've never heard anything like this. Are you sure that's in the Bible? Well, I'm going to show you today where it's in the Bible, but you're going to have to believe it. You're going to have to choose to listen to it. You're going to have to choose to accept what's being taught to you today. And it's going to be difficult for some of you. It really will because of your concept of who God is, what he's like. And so you're going to have to sit quietly and pay attention. And that's my big prayer today is that you pay attention. Don't zone in and out on me, okay, because you're only going to get bits and pieces of this. I've already apologized to the growth group leaders because they're going to have to discuss this tonight. And so this is not easy. But if you, do, if you are part of a growth group, or even if you're not and you want to be one, now's the time to join because it's going to be a good discussion tonight. I can promise you that. Why does God harden someone's heart? There are three reasons that I see in the Scripture. Maybe others you can find. I don't know. But here are three reasons why I see or how I see in Scripture why it is that God would harden a person's heart. Number one, to punish them. Just plain and simple, God says enough is enough. And so he moves in, he intervenes. Hardening the heart is the first act of punishment as he begins to work in the lives of of these people. The second reason is to provide an example for others. You're going to see as we look in the scriptures today that God hardens a person's heart, intervenes in their lives, and brings judgment upon them in order to provide an example for other people that this is what will happen. And the third reason is this, to bring them... I'm sorry, to break them of sinful habits, to break them, to bring them to their knees, to bring them to the point where they're done. And I can tell you this, as we look through this, you're going to see, there have been times in my life where I've seen this happen to people, and when they are broken, they don't go back. It's just a choice they make. They come to that realization, and this is where God takes them in order to do that. I want to jump in and look today, as we look in... The uh, passage in Joshua, where I'm getting this from, then we're going to leap out of there and go into some other passages. But if you recall the story of Joshua, as we've been studying now for months, uh, Joshua, there in our study at least, they have come to the point where they have uh, conquered uh, the, the nation, the, the Canaanites. They've destroyed everybody. Now, there are still pockets left, we'll talk about that and what the problem that arises from that is. We'll talk about it later. But I want you to look at this because they're coming to the end of this military campaign. And starting with Joshua 11, let me read for you verses 16 through 18. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills. From Mount Halak, which rises from Seir to Baal, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and put them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Actually, it was seven years. That's how long the campaign took. That's how long they were at war. We've talked about before why they did it and all of that. We're not getting into that that again. God said, go in and destroy them, and that's what Joshua was doing. Now we get down to the next few verses. I want you to look with me in verses 19 through 20. Because Joshua says this. He says, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Now stop right there. Gibeon, if you'll recall, was the city that came and fooled Joshua into making a treaty with him. And so Joshua vowed on the name of God that he would uh, be an ally to them. And it got him in all kind of hot water. We looked at that before. But this is who he's talking about now. He said, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. Now watch this. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So what is it saying? It's saying that here, the, the Joshua went into the land and not one of these cities or kings tried or even attempted to make a treaty with him because God had already hardened their hearts. And for some reason, God hardened their hearts to bring them out, it says, against Israel so that Joshua could conquer them. And it tells you why, because it says, "...so that he might destroy them totally." exterminating them without mercy. So, if you were to ask, then why did God harden the hearts of the Canaanites? You would say, because God was punishing them. We've talked about this before. God had waited 700 years on these people from the time of Abraham to the time Moses brought them out of of Egypt. 700 years for these people to come to their senses and to recognize who he is, and they didn't. He said, enough is enough. And so God sent his armies in, destroyed the nations because he desired to punish them, but also to make an example of them to everyone else. And that's exactly what he did. God hardened the hearts of sinful people. And this is important because when I'm talking about God hardening a heart, it, it is never the situation where God is arbitrary and says, I think I'll harden your heart today. That's not who God is. We're looking at people who have already made the choice to harden their own hearts, have walked away from the truth, and have lived in sinful lifestyle. God says in order that to punish you or to provide an example for you or to break you of a bad habit, I'm intervening, and I'm going to begin by hardening your heart. These are the types of people that we're looking at. Let me give you another example. Pharaoh, the Bible talks about, God hardened his heart. In the passage in Exodus where it goes through all the, the plagues upon Egypt, there's like nine times it says in this passage that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let me just take you through a surface uh, uh, look at, at what this is talking about. In Exodus chapter 4 verse 21, The Lord said to Moses, And when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now notice what he's saying to Moses. Moses, you're going to go in there and you're going to turn the water to blood. You're going to bring about flies and frogs and hail and darkness and all of these things I've given you the power to do. But I want you to understand before you ever go that I've already hardened the man's heart and he's not going to let them go. That raises a whole lot of questions. But this is what the text says. We move on down to because the plagues begin now. And down in Exodus 9, verse 12, it says this, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Here's another one in Exodus chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, So that, and here's the reason, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. I'm hardening the man's heart. He will not let the people go. I'm not going to allow him to change his mind. Because I intend to perform ten horrific plagues on Egypt, and he's not going to stop it by changing his mind. God said enough is enough. I'm going to destroy this nation of Egypt. I'm going to bring my people out, and it will be told throughout the world what has happened. And it was. If you'll recall when Joshua went into the land and met with Rahab, or his spies met with Rahab in the city of Jericho, she said, hey, you know, 40 years earlier, we've already heard about what happened to Egypt. So finally, Pharaoh decides he's going to let the people go. The ten plagues have occurred. The last one being the taking of the firstborn. Pharaoh's son dies, he says, that's it. You can go, get out of here. But that still wasn't good enough for God. Notice what happens. The people are leaving in in Exodus 14, verse 8. It says, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Hey, they're on their way out, for crying out loud. The man let them go. God said, not so fast. He said, I'm going to harden him again. He's going to go after them. God has something else in mind here. Pharaoh follows them all the way down to the Red Sea. The sea is parted. They're on their way through the Red Sea to freedom. And in chapter 14, verse 17, it says this. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. Through his chariots and his horsemen. Now what is God saying? He said, I'm not letting him off that easily. This has been a long time coming. God has had it. 400 years of my people being subjected to this bondage. He said, you're going to be destroyed. The army goes in. The army doesn't come out. They die. And God not only frees his people, but he destroys the Egyptian army. Punishment? You bet it was. Enough was enough. And God said, I will harden your heart until I bring about these judgments. Not only do you find these pagan nations like this being judged and their hearts are hardened, but do you know that God hardened the heart of Israel? This um, This is quite sobering. Years later, centuries later, really, Israel has gone through the time of the judges, the times of the kings, and they are getting close to this judgment that is about to fall on them. They've run through so many cycles of changing their mind, going back to God, God, and then God repent, or letting them repent and accepting them, and then they go back into idolatry. Idolatry was their biggest problem. It seemed like the nation could not get Egypt out of their lives. And year after year, we're, I think after we do the study on Joshua, I'm going to go right into the book of Judges. And, and what you're going to see is a cycle of about seven times in the, judge, the book of Judges where Israel says, okay, God, we repent, we're sorry. And he forgives them, and then they go right back into idolatry again. And he has to come in and send them into bondage, and then they repent again. Judgment, confession, forgiveness is just a cycle. Same cycle that we go through, I might add. More than we should. And so this is one of those times, or the time really, when Israel, God is bringing it to a close. For centuries I have waited on you, he says. And you have turned your back time after time after time until you go through this series of period of time when the kings, one right after the other, are just evil. And Israel is so steeped in idolatry again. That God says, I'm going to destroy this nation, and I'm going to send Babylon in to take you. And you're going to be in bondage for 70 years. I'm telling you that up front, so that you understand it. When Nebuchadnezzar came in, laid siege to Jerusalem, it lasted several years that he had the city surrounded. They were starving. The Bible tells us they were eating their children. This is how bad it was. Then they're hauled off into bondage for 70 years. And that is where they stayed. Isaiah is one of the prophets prior to that happening. Here's what Isaiah prophesies about and what he says. Now watch this carefully. Isaiah 63 verse 17. Here's what he says. He says, Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you. Return for the sake of your servants the tribes that are your inheritance. Now this is Isaiah looking at this period of, of seventy years of bondage, and he's saying, Why have you turned our hearts against you and hauled us off into bondage? He says, I'm I'm asking you for the sake of your tribes, the Israelite, bring us back home, he says. But it's interesting that Isaiah recognized something. That God had intervened in the lives of Israel. You see, Israel went through these cycles time after time after time for centuries, and God let it go until God said, I've had enough. Did God harden their hearts? You bet he did. Did God bring them further down than they were before? Was there a period of time where God said, enough is enough. I will not let you change. You're going to sink further down until you taste fully the debauchery of your own decisions. Choke on your own vomit, because that's where you are. So God was judging the nation of Israel, punishing the nation of Israel, and yet God was making a statement to the rest of the world as well. But do you know what else he was doing? He was breaking them. Because when Israel came back from Babylon, do you know that even to this day, the one thing that was never tolerated in Israel? Idolatry. Never again. God took them down to the pits. God took them down to their knees. God broke them until the sin was over. So there's a situation where God has done it. Now, it happened again to Israel. Now, just follow along with me, okay? I'm building a case here. Time of Jesus... Now this is hundreds of years later now, 500, almost 600 years later that after the Babylonian captivity. Jesus comes on the scene and he goes into his ministry In three and a half years he performed miracle after miracle after miracle. The book of John says there are so many things that he did that if they were all written down there wouldn't be enough room to store all the books. Now he's speaking in hyperbole but the point is this there are way more things done in the life of Christ than what's recorded in Scripture. It was a phenomenal time. God just poured out his evidence, his proof on the nation of Israel and said, this is your king. Will you believe him? Will you accept him? And so recorded for us in the book of John is what happened the last week before the crucifixion. He's, a, he's entered into Jerusalem, proclaimed himself as the king, and here's what it says, what John says here in chapter 12, verse 37. Watch. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Now that's the truth of what happened to the nation. There were many Jews individually that were responding to Christ, the church began, you know, among Jewish people. But the nation itself rejected him. The leaders rejected him. Then John goes on. And down in verse 39, here's what he says. For this reason, because they had rejected him, for this reason, they could not believe. They could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, in verse 40 now, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. What? Yeah. God, through John, is saying this. The nation had gotten to the point where ultimately and finally they said to Jesus, we think you're from Satan. Remember that in Matthew 12? They finally and ultimately rejected Him. And God said, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to harden your heart and blind your eyes so that even if you wanted to change, I'm not going to let you because you are going to feel the full brunt again of your ungodly choices. All the revelation I've given you and the times you've seen my power and you still reject me, then so be it. You're going to choke on them. So here's what happened. About 40 years later, Titus, the Roman emperor, marches into Jerusalem and utterly and finally destroys it. And that's where it's been till now. 1948, they finally got some land and claimed it and won it over and started a, a, a nation again. Still not in faith, but there they are, still under the judgment of God. They've gone through the Holocaust. They've gone through one ordeal after the other. Travesties in the nation of Israel because of this. Because God has placed them with blinders and hardened their heart. This judgment of God upon his nation, upon his people, has been going on for centuries. And it will continue to go on, the Bible tells us, until one day in the future, during the end times, that God changes their heart that God takes off the blinders, that God softens the heart. And he says, I will call my people from the four corners of the earth back home. What a good Man. But you, you need to understand the judgment that they're under now. Because it got to the point time after time after time after time of God forgiving and them going back into sin, ultimately rejecting the king that he sent. He said, enough is enough. And I'm going to punish you, I'm going to set an example, and I'm going to break you in order to bring you home. So all three are seen here in in what he does with the nation of Israel. Now here's the question, and this is the one that as you sit there you're already thinking. Here's the question. Would God ever harden the heart of a believer today? Would God ever harden the heart of a believer like this today? Yeah, I believe he would. I believe he would. Let me show you a passage of scripture. Maybe it's a passage you've looked at many times. It's a passage that has been confusing to a lot of people. I'm going to tell you what I think. You understand? Now you get to go into your growth groups tonight and discuss what you think. But I'm going to share with you what I believe this passage is talking about and where I think it fits into this whole uh, theme of what I'm talking about here today. The passage is in Hebrews. We've looked at it before, a couple of years ago, I think, but we're going to look at it again with some fresh eyes. Now, if you know the context in which this is given, just let me tell you. you are In Hebrews, in the early part, like chapter 5, it talks about how the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Hebrew Christians, and he's telling them, he says, you know what? He said, you are so immature. He said, by now, after all this time of being a believer, you ought to be teaching these things. You ought to know them that well. He said, but you have need that somebody teach them to you again. You have need of of, of being a bottle fed because you're not mature enough to to eat meat. So he's raking them over the coals. And so now he comes to chapter 6, and I want you to follow along carefully. If you've been snoozing on me, wake up, okay, because I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 6, starting with verses 1 through 3. He says, therefore, based on the fact of what I've just said about you being immature, he said, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from, dead, um, from, from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the, the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. He said, I, I don't want to talk about those anymore. We're going to move on to things that are going to help, that are going to help you grow. Verse 3 says, and God permitting, we will do so. Basically he's saying, I've already taught you these things. You've heard them. You're still struggling with accepting them. There are many of your loved ones, in fact. He's saying that you're questioning whether they understand it or not, but he says we're moving on. Now, here's what's interesting the next couple of verses. Now, watch. The verses 4 through 6. He says, it is impossible for those, now he's probably talking about their loved ones that they're concerned about. He said, is it, it is impossible for those who have once been, been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. And who have fallen away. To be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. And subjecting him to public disgrace. Oh, what is this? To- man, man, you got to... Theologians debate this all over the place. You've got books written about this passage. What is he talking about? Well, let me tell you what I think. I think that he's talking about believers. It's hard for anyone, and there are those that do it, try to do it, to to, to make these people unbelievers because we don't want to accept the fact that, yeah, believers sometimes live this way. He said it is impossible for those, and he talks about, have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of God. But yet they fell away. They looked at the world, and and, and the world got to them, and they decided they're going to walk over here on the dark side for a while. And one thing led to another, and now they are so far from God, you even begin to question if they ever were saved to begin with. I understand that. And that is certainly a possibility. But I don't think that is what he's talking about. I think that he acknowledges that they're believers. And he's saying it is impossible to take a person like that and for you to bring about change in their life. They're too cold. They're too far. They're too hardened. Now, Here's a question. And this this whole interpretation of this passage rests on this one word. Now listen. That is the word impossible. What does he mean when he says it is impossible to bring them back? There are those who, people who are of, the, are of the persuasion that a person can lose their salvation. I've heard this passage taught that way and my question to them is this do you believe that if a person loses their salvation that they can then become saved again well yeah all they got to do is you know they'll go into some spiel about cleaning up their act be better people and, and repent and turn back to god well here's the point the point says it is impossible for that to happen oh yeah so what's it talking about it's talking about a believer and you've got to ask yourself this question. Then here's a believer who is far away from God in, the, in what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that in that situation they have brought him to a public disgrace and are crucifying him over and over by the way they're living. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus hung on the cross, it was a shameful thing. He hung on the cross naked. And it was a shameful thing. And he's saying, with us, these people, as believers, living this way, people look at them and they are lifting him back up to shame him again. And, he's li- and they're bringing him to disgrace. How bad would your life have to be that it would be said about you that way? I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you have fallen away from the Lord or before you came to the Lord, that your lifestyle, Was it a disgrace to God? Yeah, I believe some people live that way. And I believe that I've seen and experienced and I know from Scripture that sometimes God's people choose to live that way. And in this particular situation, he's saying, it is impossible for these people that we're messing with over here and keep trying to teach You're not going to change them. Why are you not going to change them? Why is it impossible for those people to change? Because God has hardened their hearts. They have gotten to the point in their life where God said enough is enough. You've had ample opportunities. Cycle after cycle after cycle. You fall into sin and you say you're sorry and you want to change and then you don't. Time after time after time. And I... Need, God says, I need this to change. Does God forgive them? Yeah, every time. Because that's what grace is. Does God want to change them? Yeah, He's already said that. I want to move on to maturity, I want to change. Oh, God, how are you going to do this? I'm going to make them feel the full brunt of their decisions, I'm going to allow them to hit rock bottom. I'm going to take a life that's already a disaster and I'm going to make it worse until they come to the point where they have lost everything. And there's nowhere to look but up. For some people, that's what it takes. And this is one of those situations. That's the reason that it's impossible. Now, he gives an illustration that clarifies it. So just bear with me here, okay? The next two verses. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. Here's what he says. He he gives this as an illustration of what he's talking about. He says, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, that land receives a blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. I see some people read that and they think, well, that's talking about burning in the flames of hell. No, it's not. It's an illustration. The land is the same. It doesn't go anywhere. It's still there. That's the person. The rain falls on the good land and the bad land. The good land produces fruit that's worthy of blessing. The bad produces thorns and thistles because of the choices they're making. God says in the end, if you've got land like that, you burn it off. The land isn't burned. The thorns and the thistles do. Their works, their activities, their life are, goes up in smoke. Here's what I believe God is saying. Just, he's clarifying what he just said here. It's impossible for that person that is so far from God, they are humiliating Jesus Christ by their lifestyle, It gets to the point where it becomes impossible for them to change again because I won't let them until I have taken them to the depths of where I want them to be. And when they come back up, there will be no more of this cycling stuff. There will be no more of that behavior. And I've seen that many times where God had to burn off the land. Their lives are in a shamble horrible what happens. The consequences? Loss of family, loss of income, loss of job, loss of health. I mean, it could be any number of things that happen as a a result of this. I think probably one of the best examples in Scripture is that of the prodigal son. Here was a prodigal son living at home with his father. He says, I'm going to live in the world a while. Give me my money and let me go. Father gave him his money Didn't want him to go, but he gave him his money. He said, here you go, take off. Prodigal son, as the Bible tells us, goes out and drinks it all up, gambles it away, and runs off with women until finally he's got no money left. Everything is gone. He has hit rock bottom. Until one day, as he's sitting there in the pig pen, eating some of the corn that the pigs have, he realizes it really can't get much worse than this. He says, I think I'll go home. And He did. What did the father do? father ran out, put his arms around him, and welcomed him home. son could have come home earlier, but he probably wouldn't have stayed because he wasn't motivated. When you hit rock bottom, you're motivated. And for some people, that's what it takes. And let me just say this. Some of you guys and gals that have been ravaged by addiction, you know what I'm talking about. Seen this firsthand. You're where you are today here in this church because God took you to the bottom until He had burned off your field and then He raised you back up again. And that's what grace is. God hardens the hearts of unbelievers and believers alike. The reasons to punish them, to set an example, and to break their sinful lifestyle. I want to share with you right quick before we close, I'm just going to mention it. three things that I want you to do or three applications, let's say, three things that you can take away from this and and take and apply to your life. Number one is this. Now listen very carefully. In view of what we've been talking about, here's number one. Don't take advantage of God's love for you. Don't take advantage of that because you see every one of these people that we've talked about here in Hebrews, they took advantage of it. God loves me. God pours out His grace on me. I can go over and dabble in the world and nobody will be any wiser and it won't hurt me. God says, no, you can't do that. I've saved you by grace. I've given you the gift of eternal life. You didn't. I didn't ask you to work for it, but I am asking you now that you have it, now that you're my child, to live for me. And my plan for you, God says, is to grow you into something beautiful to give you a life that we can all be proud of. And Sometimes we take sin lightly and it goes down the spiral staircase until finally we find ourselves one day on our backs looking up because those are the choices that we made. When we harden our hearts, God has no alternative but to intervene. And when He intervenes, it's painful. That's one of the things I think that we as Christians don't understand. That when God goes to burning off your field. Now see, this is the thing about this illustration. God has to get rid of what's there in order to replant it. And when God gets rid of it, that's the painful part. How do you avoid that? Well, you're continually confessing. You know, when God brings something to mind and points out something in your life that you've done, the sinful as a Christian, then deal with it. Lord, I'm not lying to you. (laughs) I did that. You know, i told you before, there's never been a sin in my life that I ever committed that I didn't want to commit. It doesn't sneak up on you. You know, we choose to. When we do, let's be honest about it and then seek to make the changes. And if you need help, then come see somebody. But don't let it go. Here's the second thing that I want you to see, and that is this. You and I have to be bold enough to pray that God would do what is necessary to change your loved one. We all have people that we think about that are in this condition. Man, I've got a person I love so much, he's so far away from God, what am I going to do? Well, don't be shy about praying that God will break them. It's okay to pray that way. It's okay to acknowledge this is where they are. And Lord, what I need from you is to break them. And if it means hardening their heart, taking them down, for they're vomiting on their own choices, and then you bring them back up, then so be it. But I want them back. So, Lord, do it. There was a time in the life of Christ where Jesus was talking about faith. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter heaven. And here's what the disciples said to him. Luke 18, verses 26 through 27. Now watch. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? You know, they're, they're asking this question. Now here, the response is classic. Look at this. Jesus replied, what is impossible with man It's possible with God. Hebrews said it's impossible to bring them back. Yeah, it is for me, but not with God. And I've got to believe that. I've got to come to the point where I have enough faith in my God and His love for us that I can say, then God deal with them in a very harsh way. The Lord bring them back. And someone who hits rock bottom I've noticed over the years they rarely ever go back. They don't. It's amazing. It's amazing. So we need to be willing to, to pray for that. Here, the last one. Here's the third thing, very quickly. Realize that it is because of grace that God hardens the heart of a believer. Seems opposite, but think about it. God in his grace hardens the heart of a believer with the intention of restoring them. Yes, punishment. It's an example. All these things are true, but his, his desire for the believers is to bring them back. Well, I want you to see, um, let, me, let me say this. We may look at a situation like that and say to ourselves, no, wait a minute. This person is living so far from God and shaming God to such an extent. Why did not God just wash his hands of them, just put them in hell and be done with them? Because he loves them. Yeah, that's who they are. That's what they've become. God never stopped loving them. And what he's doing in their lives is still an act of love. Now watch this, okay? Just let me read you these two verses, okay? In Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. Listen to what it says. Paul's writing, he says, No, in all these things, he said, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced... That neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now think about what it's saying. He's saying, "There." He said, "I'm trying to think of something that could separate you from God's love, and I can't think of a thing." Not demons, not the spirit world, not your sinful choices. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, in closing with this, he says this, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. When God saved your soul, he began the good work. You may have wandered off. You may have fallen away. God isn't going to let you go. And when God chooses to harden your heart and bring you into judgment and pitch you to burn your field off and you hit rock bottom, God still loves you. And that is so important because that is an act of grace. So, folks, you and I have got to look at this differently. And we've got, to be, we've got to stop thinking that it's okay to run our lives in a series of cycles. Righteous sin. Repent and do it all over again. At some point, God's going to say, I want to burn the field off. I want to change this. This has to change. Don't be that person. Deal with those things now. And don't let it come to that. Okay? The Bible says in John 6, 47, Very Truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. If you're here this morning and you've never understood this, please understand that God loves you. No matter how bad you are, he still loves you. And then he sent his son to die on a cross. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God gives you eternal life. I would love to talk with you about that. If you have any questions about that, please There's a yellow card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill that out, drop it in the offering plate. I will sit down personally with you and take you through some scripture and help you to understand that. For the rest of us, here's the thing. We have to make a decision, okay? Now's the moment of truth because you and I have to acknowledge who we are and who we're becoming. And if we are heading down that rabbit hole of sinful habits in rebellion against God then it needs to stop, okay? It needs to stop because there's going to come a point in time where God puts a stop to it, and we don't want that. So my challenge is this, that as we go to prayer here this morning, and I'm going to close it up, I want you to be praying. Okay, God, what's, what is there in me that needs to change? What am I doing? What are the habits? What are the danger points? Where am I heading? I need to you confess to God, and you make commitments that you're going to be a different person. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here this morning, Father, we're humbled by the reality that, yeah, there may come a time when you intervene. The Lord, that's frightening, but yet it's reassuring. Because like any good parent, You're going to discipline a wayward son. For that I'm grateful. And Father, for each one of us, I pray that we would deal with these issues now with the power of the Holy Spirit at our disposal that we bring about change now so that we never have to taste that. Father, if there are loved ones in our lives that are rebelling against you, whether saved or not, Father, we're praying now that you take them down. Bring them to the end of themselves. Knock them to their knees. Do what you have to do because, Lord, we're trusting you. But do what you have to do to bring about change in their lives. We want them back. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name.